Hello? Oh, what, the whole world is falling apart? And everything is terrible? Uh, okay, cool, cool, cool. Bye. Well, we have a lot to talk about on AM to DM today. Pummel Cloud's gonna be joining us to talk all things impeachment, and then Zach is talking to actor Boyd Holbrook, and then you'll see my sit down with 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Julian Castro. We'll see you on the timeline. Let me take the rest of my calls over here. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Zach Stafford. She's Alex Berg, and you are watching AM to DM, the end of the world edition. <laughs> I'll take that phone call. Here's a tweet from The New Yorker. We can now look forward to endless, circular, partisan, and highly unsatisfying debates in the coming weeks and months. Susan Glasser writes, the next season of The Trump Show has begun. And here's a tweet from President Donald Trump himself from earlier today. The greatest scam in history of American politics. Here's a tweet from Z-Way. A House impeachment would be the first popular vote Trump ever won. Um, Woo! That is some piping hot tea. People are finding some levity. Really, and they need you because things are moving at a breaking neck speed. You know, even us working in media, I feel like every second we're like, what is happening? What is happening? Why is there, um, you know, a a whistleblower complaint in my inbox right now? How is this declassified? (laughs) Why is the world... I'm rushing to read this before we have to (laughs) go live. It's a lot, but what what is so amazing about these moments is that Twitter does what Twitter does best every time, and that is create levity and jokes and response to things in real time as they're moving. And I'm always just so impressed with how quick we think of things. Not we, because I'm usually not that person. But some of these memes that are flying out here are just really, really brilliant. So like, bravo, y'all. I feel like people have like a a crystal ball and they're able to plan for the future. They're like, I'm going to do this thing, so I'm going to prepare. They've been thinking about this for Mm -hmm. the past couple of years and finally it's it's their their time to shine. They're like, I'm going to send it. They've just been waiting. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's been interesting too over the past couple of days in terms of figuring out what to cover on the show Mm -hmm. is that Twitter has been so saturated by this particular story, yeah. like as tends to happen, yeah. but it, it feels like really, it's like hard to even find other stories to mm-hmm. cover because it feels like this is the thing that everybody is exactly about. totally yeah, consuming, and that's totally fine. I mean, you know, this is how a new cycle works. You yeah, know, exactly. Something central, then we keep following it. But I think why memes are really productive is that if you see a meme of you know Nancy Pelosi doing X Y Z, people will begin to be like, well, what is that from? And they begin to look into it. So I do think there is an intellectual argument for memes that I will be teaching in a journalism class one day. <laughs> how memes make people smarter eventually. You're actually drafting your essay about it mm-hmm. right now. I'm testing it. Yeah. In <laughs> yeah, well, this got us thinking about the kind of pop culture that we like yeah. to consume when uh, the news cycle is just completely one topic. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I went home last night and I was like, I'm excited to watch The Real Housewives of Orange County because mm-hmm. in addition to watching uh, a reality TV president mm-hmm. um, spar uh, with the government, um, I like watching actual reality TV stars fight each other. But isn't he an actual reality TV <laughs> well, star? Well, that's what I'm saying, but different... he's also a reality TV star. See, I need to do something different. <laughs> I've become very obsessed with Rewatching all of the Sex and the City episodes because I now live in New York City. Um, and what has been the most shocking thing is that as I'm watching, particularly season four, President Trump keeps popping up. Samantha brings him up a few times about fundraisers and his money or having Trump money. And it just makes you realize that, like, you know, the world is flat or time is flat. And all these things keep coming back and coming they, back. They do, they, they have new relevance. Although I say, I think if Sex and the City were to come back in 2019, um, 
as much as I loved uh, Samantha and as much as she was kind of an introduction to mm-hmm. sex positivity for me, I feel like she is the secret, perhaps the secret Trump supporter out of all of them, where she is the one who is running like crisis PR for truly bad men. She would. You know? She would. I think like she actually in the show, there is uh, Richard, the Richard, the, her, the her, her boyfriend. Yeah, her yeah. boyfriend for a long time. He's very, very rich. I think he's like Stephen Ross, circa age 48 or something. It was the Equinox. Yes, the Equinox Investor, guy, Soul Cycle. Yeah. She protects him. She's always running, interference, and she's also sleeping with him. So I guess she would uh, maybe throw a, a Trump fundraiser in the Hamptons. Meanwhile, Charlotte's trying to be the like fiscally conservative oh Republican. With Gary Johnson. And she votes for Gary Johnson. <laughs> 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 Upper you know, East Side apartment. Exactly, exactly. I love exactly. That. <laughs> well, let's take it to the timeline. What are your favorite impeachment memes, jokes, and tweets? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. Here's a tweet from Axios. New House Intel Chair Adam Schiff said the memo of the phone call between Trump and Ukraine's president was far more damning than he expected and reiterated his demand for the whistleblower complaint to be released in its entirety. Mm. And the tweet continues. It is shocking at another level that the White House would release these notes and felt that somehow this would help the president's case or cause. Because what those notes reflect is a classic mafia-like shakedown of a foreign leader. We're going live from the district. Joining us now to break down all things impeachment is Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Good morning. Hi, good morning. I feel like last time we talked, uh, it ended with me saying, I think we might for real be on the verge of impeachment beginning. And that feels like three months ago, it was 48 hours Yeah, ago. Um, you know, you've had a very chill, quiet morning, yeah. I'm guessing. Nothing to see here. Mm. Yeah, I slept in. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was great. Yeah, very luxurious. All right, well, yeah. let's let's get into uh, some of the things that are mm. happening to uh, happening this morning, actually, as we speak. Um, can you kind of get us a little bit caught up? Um, have you you've read the memo? What's your reaction to everything going on? Sure. So, yes. So the memo came out yesterday. I mean, it does clearly show uh, President Trump asking the president of Ukraine to look into uh, the Biden family uh, to get to the bottom of this, to launch an investigation. So when I look at things like this, because I've seen how this plays out in Washington before, I try to take the mindset of reading it through the eyes of a prosecutor and a defense lawyer. And if you look at it through the eyes of a prosecutor, uh, you see what clearly appears to be a shakedown. Uh, Trump was at the time withholding hundreds of millions of dollars in aid to the Ukraine and him saying, hey, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, I need you to look into my uh, my political rivals, seems pretty clear. From the point of view of a defense lawyer, though, you would look and say, well, he never articulates any quid pro quo. He never says, do this or I'm going to withhold your money. So my client deserves to get off. And that's essentially how this has played out in terms of how Republicans and, and Democrats have interpreted this memo. And, you know, this memo is really jarring. Why would the White House so quickly release it? This seems kind of insane. What we heard before the memo was released was that the White House was somewhat confident that it would play well, uh, maybe not exactly exonerate the president, but certainly would it would show that there was no smoking gun and kind of reveal that Democrats had been hyperventilating about nothing. Uh, that is not how this has played out so far. I mean, it just simply looks like this may have been a miscommunication by the White House. So I want to talk or, um, about the misexpectation. Yeah, mm. I want to talk about the whistleblower complaint that was released um, this morning. Uh, what do we know uh, about what's contained in it so far? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, we've just been going through this. Uh, it, 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 the plot has thickened quite a bit more. Um, 
there's an element of cover-up here now. It looks like the transcript was uh, taken at the behest of White House lawyers out of the usual database where transcripts are stored and put into a database that is much more highly secured, essentially to keep people from being able to see this, which, I mean, the implication is, for one, that the people in the White House immediately realized that this was uh, troubling and was going to cause problems, and two, they may have broken the law because you're not supposed to be able to do this with presidential communications. Uh, we also have more information about Rudy Giuliani uh, actually traveling to Europe to meet with Ukrainian officials. I mean, he clearly has emerged as a key point man uh, through all of this, and, and it also paints a picture that, uh, you know, whether, however or not you interpret what President Trump may have Mandra said, it seems pretty clear that the Ukra- on the Ukrainian side, they very much interpreted this as investigate the Bidens or we're cutting off aid. That is how they took it. Wow. Wow. So beyond Giuliani, who else is mentioned in here? I believe Barr is also brought up a few times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Barr and Giuliani are, are in particular are uh, seen as a two-point man uh, during the transcript. Trump repeatedly, I think it might even be five separate times, um, uh, uh, says, all right, like, touch base with them. They're going to be taking it from here. Mm. All right. So we have a tweet here from the New York Times. A majority of the House now supports an impeachment inquiry against President Trump, according to a New York Times survey and public statements. A simple majority or 218 votes is needed to impeach a president. We mentioned before that House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff said the transcript reads like a, quote, classic mob shakedown. And we want to talk more about the reactions from the past uh, 24 hours. So let's start with Congressman Schiff. Um, as many were noting his language, what did you make of his reaction and even anything that he said this morning? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, so Schiff has been very aggressive on this. I mean, he, he's literally comparing the, the uh, president to a, a mob mafioso. Um, uh, but, I mean, this is also in keeping with Schiff, who Schiff is. He's been throughout the entire Russia investigation, one of the more aggressive Democrats, uh, certainly one of the attack dogs when it comes to looking into the president. But everything he says is notable because, of course, he is a very powerful committee chairman who right now, as we're speaking, or, well, at least as of a moment ago, uh, was, was is, like, you know, questioning uh, the top intelligence official in the House. Wow. And talk to us about other notable lawmakers who are speaking out this morning. Are there any Republicans now kind of moving the needle on this conversation? So the large majority of Republicans fall somewhere between wanting to see more information and kind of with reserving judgment uh, to flat out, this is nothing, uh, Democrats have lost their mind, uh, this is, th- th- there's clearly no quid pro quo. We, we heard that a lot yesterday. Uh, they've very much doubled down on there being no, at least expressly verbalized, quid pro quo. Um, I mean, some of the defenses, you know, which talk about Rudy Giuliani for a moment, I mean, he came out and essentially had this sort of strange rant about how George Soros was connected to this and how this is all a a democratic conspiracy that they were trying to look into and FBI agents were being paid by George Soros, um, which, uh, uh, let me say, obviously, none of that has been corroborated or or proven. uh, But I mean, you know, it seems like that they're they're pulling out that handy uh, boogeyman. Uh, So there's been, for the most part, pretty steadfast Support not universal. There have been a couple outliers, but for the most part, Republicans have really rallied around the president. Mm. Now, uh, Biden released a statement. Uh, I believe he, of course, is mentioned in the phone call. What did the statement say? Um, you know, what should we uh, take from it? Yeah, I mean, so Biden came out and said, you know, these are this is very serious. Uh, the president is you know, endangering the country, misusing his office, and, and calls for the 
the House to hold him to account, which, I mean, Joe Biden, welcome to the resistance. Like, that's, we're already there. Uh, he did not use the impeachment word, but, um, you know, this is, this kind of goes to show that where even, even days ago, I actually was talking to one senator who was like, you know, I decided I was for impeachment on a plane on Friday. So that's how quickly this is all coming together. But, you know, people like Biden, who were very much resistant to any talk of that at all, uh, have really come around. The Democratic Party has become pretty unified. And again, there are a couple outliers. I can't say it's universal. But in terms of, in terms of elected Democrats, uh, the vast, vast majority feel that, at the very least, impeachment proceedings uh, need to be begun. And I would say it looking like more and more belief that an actual impeachment vote uh, needs to take place. Okay, so the Democrats have seemed to band it together quickly, very quickly, uh, but Republicans, of course, are still not. And Lindsey Graham has become one of the loudest voices against this inquiry. Talk to us about his reaction over yeah. the past 48 hours. Yeah, yeah. So Lindsey uh, put out a uh, statement calling this a nothing burger. Uh, interestingly, daring almost House Democrats to put this to a vote, um, essentially saying, like, go ahead, make my day. This is interesting because he, of course, was around during the, the Clinton impeachment saga. And uh, you can go online and see some uh, interesting comparisons between what he said then and what he said now. But probably, you know, the most interesting one, uh, it, or at least the most relevant to this, is that he, at, there's a speech he gave where he said during the 90s, uh, you do not need to actually say the words to obstruct justice, or in this case, to demand a political favor. You don't need to say, this is a quid pro quo. You don't need to say, I am obstructing justice. And of course, now we're seeing a big part of his defense and many Republicans' defenses of Trump resting on him not literally using the words. Uh, so, I mean, what can I say? Lindsey Graham has changed a lot in the last few years. He has become one of the most steadfast defenders of the president, and that continues today. Well, here's the tweet from the Washington Post. Trump's intelligence chief threatened to quit if White House forced him to stonewall Congress on whistleblower officials say. Uh, Joseph McGuire began his testimony in Congress um, just an hour ago. And what do we know so far? Yeah, so because of the way these committees work, there's actually a lot of opening statements. So he, he really just, like, the good stuff just started uh, moments before we went to air. I mean, we we saw some early comments of him, him saying that uh, uh, he believes this is very serious. He believes that this is actually unprecedented, um, uh, that the whistleblower complaint uh, was taken, you know, taken to be credible by the inspector general. But uh, beyond that, that is just starting to unfold. So we don't have, so, I mean, <laughs> people can s switch to C-SPAN when, when we're done with the Hampton DM and, and see how it goes. <clears throat> that, yeah, that may be the best thing you can do because we'll be talking about that more tomorrow. But before I do the double screen myself. I keep you guys on one and C-SPAN on the other and go back and forth. That's, that's my know, compliment. Wanting, wanting to watch C-SPAN is a sign of the times we're in. Oh my God, that is so true. That's so true. Well, Paul, thank you so much for running us today. And we yeah, that, enjoyed that or insanity. <laughs> <laughs> well, and thank you so much, Paul. <laughs> Oh my God, this is just too... Yeah. I'm just like laughing because, you know, this is... 
we're laughing because it's... There's a lot of things you don't want to cry kind yeah, of moment. Yeah, this is very, very, very serious, everyone. You know, our president is currently having impeachment inquiries into a deal he tried to make to interfere with the 2020 election, which we were just Allegedly, a part of last yeah. week, talking to every I, candidate. I know, so, you I know, know, this is, uh, as we make jokes, we are talking about the future of the country and the most powerful people in the world. So we, of course, will continue to follow that yeah. along and show you the memes along the way. We, sure, we will definitely show you the memes. Well, later on, Zach will chat with actor Boyd Holbrook about his new Netflix movie, In the Shadow of the Moon. But up Next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Fire! Fire! Okay, y'all, we have some breaking <laughs> news that we must announce, which is that Zach Stafford is on the Route 100 list um, in the most amazing company. There are some really incredible folks on here, uh, including Lizzo, Janet Mock. There are lawmakers on this list. Congratulations, friends. Thank you. I'm literally just finding out about this in real time. So deserved. Well, thank you. I I mean, yay. I don't even know what to say. This is very exciting. It's the first time I've been on this list. I I think this is very exciting. It's also funny to find this out while like literally talking about President Trump's Also, My phone started blowing up, and I was like, I... What? I, what did I do? Who, who did what? Um, yeah, I love The Root. Thank you, everyone. Um, I love being black. So, yay, this is great. And gay and all the things. I'm just here. I'm Thank just here you. to applaud oh you, affirm so you, funny. all of those things. I love that I'm like, ah, this. My, I feel like my mom's probably finding this out right now. She's probably calling somebody. So have fun, mom. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, thank you, everybody. Thank it's you, It's amazing. Ruth. It's amazing. Appreciate I'm compelling. It. Let's okay. talk about other people's tweets now. <laughs> I want to move on from me. On that topic, uh, we'll now debase ourselves yes. uh, as we read these tweets. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Yumi, you tweeted, sitting in the library, acting like I didn't just reread the same sentence 44,643 times. <laughs> Me trying to do work ever, that, retaining information. As an editor, there are many times where I find myself just glazed over, like, what does this sentence say? Oh, it's the news. Yes, that happened. Yes, so. yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, yeah. well, Tyler, here's a tweet from you. Friendship is when you are on FaceTime with your friends and the phones disconnect and y'all both know not to call back. Like, this call's actually finished, you know, and we both know that it's done. I called with a friend the what other day, and it dropped. He texted me, he's like, I know you were actually over it, so I just didn't call back. I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I really yeah. was. Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> Barty, you tweeted, my older coworkers, what did you do this weekend? Me, uh, not much. Did some reading, slept a lot. Me this weekend. Oh, <laughs> you ever I feel, feel like it's guilt? so true. Do you feel guilt about that? When no. It's like, I just rested. And you're like, ooh, I did not sleep. You know, we all, resting is, you can interpret it however mm-hmm. you want. You can define it however you want. And um, for some of us, rest is an IV drip of Pinot Grigio. Whoa, that is real. That is real. Wow, IV drip of Pinot Grigio. So delicious. All right, Nicole, you treat it. If you were the type of child that hoarded stickers because you couldn't commit to sticking them onto something and not being able to remove them in one piece, congrats, you are now an anxious adult. Yes, welcome to my life. Was that you? No, I mean, that wasn't me, but I'm sure that I had other tendencies that probably, like, fall into this. I didn't do this because I had commitment issues. I don't know if I would love that sticker in two weeks. And then, I guess, if I took it off, I couldn't get it off. Wow, that explains... I'm like now going through therapy in real time. Mine was like the the anxiety of the situation uh-huh. and yours is the commitment issues. And wow, look at us as adults. <laughs> is Lisa watching? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take it to the timeline. What was the habit you had as a kid that now affects you as an adult? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. Is generalized anxiety disorder a habit? It's a millennial habit. <laughs> well then, you know. We, we are the me, poster me, children. Me. All right, tweet of the day. Yes. Comes from Johnny Sun. Everything happens for a reason, and sometimes that reason is that 
I'm an idiot. Which I just felt like this really resonated with me, you know? It resonated with today. Today. With you all can For reasons that, that you all can figure out on your own. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. so think about that. Well, coming up, I'm talking to actor Boyd Holbrook about the upcoming Netflix film In the Shadow of the Moon. Here's a tweet from AMTDM alum Jesse McLaren. What piece of pop culture has ruined your first name? And Jesse kicked things off with a tweet. Mine is Jesse's Girl, which is about a guy who wants to steal Jesse's girl. <laughs> Screw that guy. Jessica tweeted, my name is Jessica. There is essentially no bottom to this answer. And Jenny tweeted, Forrest Gump, if I ever meet Tom Hanks on the street, I'm going to sock him in the mouth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is... Jenny, the yelling Jenny is forever yes, stuck in my Jenny, head. Uh, Jenny, or also, yeah, yeah, that's the only one. What's the other one? What's that phone number song? Is that girl named Jenny too? 8675309? I don't know what her I don't is. know. Well, Jenny works then. Well, yeah. what is yours actually? Because Alex, I feel like, has to tie into a lot of films. Yeah, so I, I have to say the biggest one is the Alec Berg, who is a producer from Seinfeld. And there's like this Seinfeld scene where mm -hmm. Jerry, I think, makes this whole joke about like Alec Berg. And everybody makes this joke to me all the time. For fuck's sake, please stop <laughs> as soon as you meet me. I've heard this a million times. It didn't like ruin my name in, it didn't like cancel uh -huh. my name. It's just very annoying to hear this joke. Over okay, it. yeah. It's ruined it for me. And so. that's been going on for a while because that episode probably was early 90s. My entire life. Yeah. I think since like the seventh grade, um, well, this has been happening. I so. too have something from you the do. 90s. You defined my entire life that I need to get off of my chest. Well, so the one thing that came to mind when I read this tweet was the movie Hocus Pocus. Do you know why? No, I don't. That, the white boy, the lover in there, the oh. guy, ghost, cat, the cat. Um, everyone walks up to me every time during Halloween and says, Zachary Binks, Zachary Binks. Stop it. And his name isn't Zachary Binks, though. That's been like the gag my whole life. So my so whole life is... has been defined by correcting people when they come up to me and say, oh, your name's Zach, like Zachary Binks? I'm like, no, his name is Thackeray Binks. <laughs> Thackeray. And then no one believes me that his name is Thackeray, and then we have to do this whole fact-checking moment, and then they look dumb. So everyone, move on. His name's not Zachary. It's Thackeray. Uh, and I obviously have a lot of feelings oh about this. Oh, my. That would really I annoy me. But also, I hate to tell you that it is kind of hilarious. It it's, so. yes. So I'm a, the little black cat and the hoax pokes, everybody. Well, can I also just say that sometimes it doesn't always take pop culture to ruin a name in general. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if you've ever met someone who was just a terrible person and it ruins their name. And you're like, wow, I really liked that name. And then you had it. And then now I can't name my kid that name because you have ruined it. And I'm always going to associate <laughs> it with it. Is there a name? I am, I cannot, I'm, I will not. I will not do this. I, I'll just share this with everyone. I have... <laughs> <laughs> I have a trend of uh, dating a lot of men with names from the Bible, so like Matthew, Luke, these things. Which, um, like, those are those are very common, pretty ubiquitous name. names. Yeah. yeah. So now I, every time I meet my friends, will be, I'll say, "Oh, I met this guy," and they go, "Is his name in the Bible?" <laughs> so now I have like this fear of marrying a man with his, his name, name is, from the Bible. His name mm -hmm. is in the Bible. Yeah, this is my anxiety every day. Yeah, I mean, I that's... meet like Matthew, and I'm like, oh. No, Ugh. can your name be something else? I almost just said Saeed, but then that would, I'm never no. making Saeed jokes. No, actually, I think the worst is um, like ex-boyfriends who had really great names that mm -hmm. I think would make really good names for girls. <laughs> Not trying to call anybody out in particular, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but there are definitely some names that I'm like, I could never, I could like never. Like a Rory? I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you any of these. I'm really know? trying to pull out, I'm sharing Alex, now people can go to my Instagram I'm and put a, in I'm, some biblical you know names what? and start clocking. You know what? Zach, you like getting dragged on the internet more than me, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do this to myself. <laughs>
<laughs> if only people could see my mentions right now. Yeah, yeah I yeah. sure do. I yeah, sure do. Yeah. Mm. All right, well, let's take it to the timeline. We want to know how your name has been ruined. Tweet us an answer to Jesse's question. Or you can just be Zach Safford and your name is ruined forever and always. Well, <laughs> coming up, I'm talking to Sal Osterlitz about friends, so stay tuned. Thackeray, unreal. Thackeray. Eric Vest tweeted, In the Shadows of the Moon is the newest from We Are What We Are's Jim Mickle, and it's, sne- it's a sneaky sci-fi flick masquerading as a period cop drama. Great turns by Boyd Holbrook and Cleopatra Coleman, super bloody and full of twists and turns, very much enjoyed it. Here with me to talk more about the upcoming Netflix film is star Boyd Holbrook. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for being Happy. here. Of course, of course. Well, let's start off by our conversation with a clip, because I think people want to see this trailer. You've seen this woman. Nice to see you again. She gets torn apart by a train and nine years later she's back. She is priority number one for all law enforcement agencies. You have to stop chasing me. I'm doing all this for a reason. All right, so there is so much going on in that. It's really action-packed. What is is this film about? Uh, It's a story about Thomas Lockhart. He's a... um, you know, he's a uh, driven beat cop, and his life gets turned upside down one night. He, uh, he's on tra- he's uh, tracking a series of murders. Uh, he catches that girl, and um, it just unravels from there. Mm. And what drew you to the role of this officer? You know, it was an opportunity to play a lot of characters in one character without giving too much away from the film, but mm-hmm. uh, there's so many different segments that we're picking up in uh, kind of each of uh, all of these characters' lives. So to have that opportunity and work with Jim, that was that was the draw. That's, that's good. Um, and your character's obsession with the case threatens everything throughout the whole film, including his family's life, and you are a husband in real life, and has it helped you rethink about your own career a bit? <laughs> It does make you, yeah, it does It does make your choices a little different. You know, I travel with my family. We do everything together, so they, they're in every decision. Got it, got it. So it's like you're taking this home, and you're like, whoa, I'm going to make a few changes. Yeah, I'm going to be in this location for a while. You know, you, you kind of have to take in everything. You know, he's going to go to school soon. We're going to have to deal with that. Yeah. That's a whole other. Are you nervous about the school stuff? Yeah, we're, we're wondering what to do. You know, we've got a couple of years, so we're, we're, we're planning it out. Yeah, no, I mean, you'll figure it out. Take some time. So the movie also has a sci-fi element that deals with time. Mm-hmm. You know, has that really messed with your mind on time? Because I feel like when I watch sci-fi and it's giving me new ideas to think about time and space, I walk away like, oh, shit, this, <laughs> the world's a little different now. <laughs> the times are definitely changing. Um, you know, I think it just brings a, sort of, a certain level of consciousness to uh, thinking about time and dealing with this and planning this part out and tracking his arc and where he's at in the world mm-hmm. and where he's coming and going from. Uh, yeah, it really puts things in perspective. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your co-stars are Michael C. Hall mm-hmm. and uh, Miss Cleopatra Coleman. What was it like working with those two fantastic you know, actors? I was a big fan of uh, Cold in July, mm-hmm. which is what Jim Mickle and uh, Michael made that kind of lured me into uh, his whole world, and Cleo is so striking, and uh, she gives a, a pretty incredible performance. Yeah, and, and you know what, you also have to give an incredible performance, because there's a lot of like, you know, action-packed scenes, mm-hmm. a lot of fighting. What type of training did you do to uh, prepare for You know, that? I wish I had a big story of all the, you know, jujitsu and <laughs> taekwondo that I did, but uh, it was really rough, and we didn't have a lot of time. It was a really jam-packed schedule, so, mm-hmm. you know, I did the kind of classic ride-along, in upstate New York, um, you know, there was the Philadelphia 
setting. So mm-hmm. that was the voice and the world that I stayed in with that. But uh, other than that, it wasn't a lot. Do you have any funny stories from the ride-along? Anything crazy you saw? Um, you know, not really. There was, uh, you don't really want to kind of release too much about riding along with these guys and what yeah. happens. But uh, they gave me the idea of just, these guys carry so much, uh, you know, baggage with them, the belt, all mm-hmm. this. And so I made this, I uh, came up with this idea to put, as my character progresses through time, I wanted him to weigh down. So mm-hmm. I, I put on this body of sort of weights and it was August and that was not the right choice to make. Wow, yeah. I'm sure you were like sweating. Yeah, so. it was like uh, <laughs> this great actor thing I was gonna do and it just turned out to be a total, <laughs> total calamity. <laughs> You know, so this movie is not your first time playing a cop. You know, you were very well known from Narcos, yeah. playing a DEA agent. And what do you like most about playing in these cop dramas? You know, they're they're unique in in, in their own right. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time with the DEA before playing uh, Steve Mur- and and with Steve Murphy playing that. It was you know such an iconic historical event that was going on at the time. And and with this, it was its own thing that that drawed me to it. I think it's really rooted in. Uh, the love for his wife and his mm-hmm. kid. I just had, you know, my own child with my wife, yeah. and it was a, it was a real eye-opening experience. So I really related to, to that at the time. Yeah, I gotcha. Are you looking to do more films like this? Uh, you know, it was so much to wrap my head around uh, with with all this stuff. You know, I like to kind of play things that are foreign to me and and just different. So it it all really depends on the project. Okay. Well, speaking of projects, you know, this is a Netflix project. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to know what, uh, and this isn't your first time with Netflix, you're kind of a good friend of theirs. And what is the difference there between, you know, creating these really cool projects with a streaming service versus Mm -hmm. a theater? Well, there's, there is, you know, there's a kind of, a couple benefits that I think Netflix creates a firewall where, they don't let a lot of critics get their their, their fingers mm-hmm. into it, and they just allow the audience to to see it and to watch it. Um, you know, that's that's the greatest thing about it. You know, training as an actor, you know, you go to you know drama school for theater, and so you're a different perspective mm-hmm. on how uh, your work is presented. So it's it is a it's a little adjustment and different as I guess our platforms are getting smaller. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. I never think about the fact that you know Netflix keeps such a tight hold on things. You can't let the critics like bubble about it, and then mm. it hits the the, the radio yeah. waves or TV yeah. waves, all that. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talk to me about this yeah, show. It looks really, really great and exciting, uh, and I can't wait to watch it from the comfort of my own couch at home. In the Shadow of the Moon is out on Netflix this Friday, September twenty seventh. Up next, we're talking about the new book. Generation Friends. Here's a treat from UberFax. It took 25 years, but it finally happened. My job's a joke. I'm broke, my love life is a duo, <laughs> dead on arrival, sorry. The prophecy has been fulfilled. And it's been 25 years since the series premiere of Friends, and joining me now is Sal Osterlitz, author of the new book, Generation Friends, an inside look at the show that defined a television era. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Friends has become quite the conversation on the, inter- on the internet lately, and I've been looking forward to us chatting for a while. So first off, tell me, why did you want to create a book about Friends specifically? So I'd written a book called Sitcom that came out in 2014, and it was a history of the American sitcom. And so one of the shows I looked at was Friends. Mm -hmm. I got to watch the entire show again, wrote a chapter about it, sort of felt like I'd said my piece. And then a few years ago, I came across an article in the New York Times that was about high school students here in New York City and how they had embraced Friends and kind of discovered it for themselves Mm -hmm. and were arguing about it and thinking about it and obsessing over it. And I realized there was this entirely new generation of fans a lot of whom hadn't been born when the show went on the air. Yeah. Some of whom hadn't been born when the show went off the air. Yeah. 
And I really wanted to write a book for them to kind of fill them in on what they'd missed a bit mm. and also to tell their story and, and think about some of the weird ways in which Friends, of all the shows of that era, uh, is a show that still manages to find a new audience. Mm. And you know, in your book, you talk about Friends being the last major sitcom to hit cultural ubiquity, where everyone loved it. Why do you think that show particularly made it so big and continues to last so long? I think it's in part that, especially for the younger fans who embrace the show, there's something really, uh, it, it's a kind of fantasy mm-hmm. um, in which you, uh, well, well, first of all, I think what I would say is that it, it gives a kind of template for the future. Okay. Uh, you watch it, especially if you're a younger fan, and you're wondering, well, what's life going to be like when I'm an adult? And so you see, I'll have my first job, I'll have my first relationship, maybe I'll have my first heartbreak, perhaps eventually I'll get married and have children. And I think that all of that is contained within this really comforting fantasy, this idea of even when I'm doing all of those things, I'm somehow going to be doing all of them with my friends. Mm. I'll have children, but I'll still somehow have breakfast with my friends every Mm. single day. And so I think that's an incredibly appealing idea if you're 14 or 16 and your friends are your entire world. Mm. So, you know, that makes me, as you say that, I think a lot about the show Girls. You know, it tried to accomplish that, but it did not hit the same level of, like, cultural ubiquity, as you said, as Friends did. So do you think that Friends may be the last one, the one, last one that will ever be able to do that? I think it's structural to some extent. It's not that Girls had any particular deficiency, I would say, but, you know, Friends emerged in a world where there were four networks, Mm -hmm. and cable existed, but there really wasn't much original programming. So you knew you could know all the shows that were on television at any one given moment. Girls is coming out, and and any other show is emerging in a world where there are something like 500 scripted shows Mm -hmm. on television in a year. It's more than any one human being could really even be aware of, let alone watch all of. And so any show, even the biggest show, even if we're talking about something like Game of Thrones, oh. which feels ubiquitous, the, the amount of the size of the audience it reaches is inevitably going to be so much smaller. Mm, and so how does Netflix play into all of this? Because you're saying, you know, there's so many options, but Friends, within a very crowded field, was able to rise again when it joined Netflix, and now it's leaving to go to HBO Max, I believe? Yes. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I think that Netflix has made the show feel more available to younger audiences. Obviously, you could turn on you know, your local syndicated channel and watch mm-hmm. it there. You could watch the DVDs. It's not like it wasn't available. But I think that having it appear on Netflix, which is often the main platform that younger fans use to watch anything, uh, and have it be so easily streamable and bingeable has made it feel more accessible. And I think that that, that in particular has brought it to the attention of, of this large audience. And and we can see in all of this streaming maneuvering that Friends is this incredibly valuable property, right? Mm-hmm. That that um, Netflix was willing to pay a hundred million dollars to keep it for just one more year, and the only reason why they're not continuing to pay a hundred million dollars each year is because Warner Brothers felt like they wanted to build an entirely new streaming platform, of which the major purpose of that was that they could have Friends and and kind of keep it for themselves. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, Friends is like I go to my neighbor's house all the time. He's constantly watching it. And I'm like, girl, haven't you seen this enough? But he just loves so much the the stories and the narratives, narratives going on there. And, you know, two central couples that people love in the show were Ross uh, and Rachel and Chandler and Monica. These are big draws for folks. Uh, but those relationships were never planned. How did they happen? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting to realize that the show evolved over time and in some ways had a relatively different profile when it was first being thought of. So initially, the idea for Friends was that the character of Monica would be the main character. She mm-hmm. would be the star of the show. It would be about this gruff, tough-talking, ultimately kind of lovable New Yorker who's a chef 
they were picturing someone like Janine Garofalo in the mm. role. And so the idea initially was that Monica and, and the character of Joey would be the main love interest on the show. And Joey also would be a bit different. He'd be a little bit more serious, more of like <laughs> He's a... smart. Yeah. They, they described him as like a young Al Pacino type. Oh, wow. And so it wasn't until they had cast the entire show, and ca- you know, cast all six characters and had them together in a room reading the script that they saw there's this really intense chemistry between David Schwimmer and Jennifer Aniston. Let's maybe work with that. Let's see what we can do. Interesting. So it sounds like their chemistry is what really drove the show and every aspect of it. So what do you think about a reboot? Will that ever happen, or will they ever be persuaded to all come back and try the show again? I think the answer is no. Mm. Um, I actually reported a story for the New York Times a few weeks ago on this subject, and I got to speak to some of the creators, and, and the general feeling was twofold. One was that, uh, the motto of the show when they were initially pitching it to networks was it's the time in your life when your friends are your family. Mm-hmm. It's very much intended to be a show about life in your 20s. And so to bring it back, it couldn't really be that anymore. Mm-hmm. The characters who, are, who were in their 20s would now be in their 50s. Yeah. And so either it would be a show about life in your 50s, which could be very compelling mm-hmm. but would be a different show, or it would somehow be a show about people in their 50s who are acting like people in their 20s, which I think would be <laughs> Strange, And I think the other element is that Friends has been an incredibly financially successful show. Mm -hmm. So where other shows um, feel a little bit of a financial pull of, hey, let's come back Mm -hmm. and let's capitalize on on our past success, Mm -hmm. I don't think that the creators of Friends feel that. Mm -hmm. And they would much rather protect the legacy of what they've already created mm. and rather than risk it by trying to bring it mm, back. Unlike Will and Grace, which came out at the same time and they've rebooted it and now I believe it's going away again. I, I think so. It's not as successful. Well, before I let you go, I have to talk about the diversity issues of the show. You know, it's been criticized a lot because it is all white uh, and folks have tried to argue for that and against that. But how do you think the writers room really made that happen and wasn't very cognizant of it happening in real time? I'm not sure about the writer's room. I think that some of the decisions were made early on when the show was being cast. And so um, there had been some desire to look at more diverse casting, but I think without a, a particular focus on doing that and, and, and you know, a commitment to it, it kind of inevitably didn't come about. And so Friends, even at the time, even when the show was on the air, there was quite a bit of criticism in the media about its relative lack of diversity, Mm -hmm. that not just the six main characters, but even the sense that we have of New York around them seemed to be overwhelmingly white. And it took quite a bit of time for the show to respond to it and to cast non-white performers, um, and it felt like it was a little bit late in the game for that to happen. So Mm -hmm. I, I think... You know, were we to imagine a 2019 version of Friends, it would inevitably have to look notably different. Mm -hmm. And do you think then, that makes me think of, you know, the show Insecure, uh, all black cast, kind of Friends format. Do you think Friends, through its kind of failures of inclusion, have created avenues for other shows to pop up that can do it better? I think somewhat. I think that that there are definitely, um, you know, creators who look at a show like Friends and say, hey, let's do that, but let's make it feel more updated, more true Mm -hmm. to life. And I think also it's, it's a reflection, again, of this universe of 500 shows where there's just more opportunity. You know, there's more chance for people to tell their own stories and to have them appear in exactly the way that they want them to. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about this. And the book is fantastic. So, well, Generation Friends is available now, so go grab it. And you'll see up next Alex sitting down with 2020 presidential candidate Julian Castro.
In Iowa, I sat down with several of the Democratic presidential candidates, including former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Julian Castro. Here's our conversation. Welcome. I'm joined by former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development and 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Julian Castro. Welcome. Great to be with you. Thanks great, for having me. Yeah, great to have you here. Of course, we are in Cedar Rapids, Iowa right now for the LGBTQ Forum. So I want to start off with a question about that. Um, what do you think is the biggest challenge facing LGBTQ people? I would say that too oftentimes people are able to still get away with discriminating against members of the LGBTQ community and that during the last two years of this administration, uh, this administration has rolled back progress that had been made, whether it's in housing, whether it's in employment, religious exemptions that are given from anti-discrimination laws. Too oftentimes um, people in the LGBTQ community are still treated uh, in some ways, like second-class citizens. Mm. Now, you tweeted about uh, the epidemic of violence, uh, in particular against trans women of color. Um, what do you think needs to be done to address that issue? Several things. Uh, number one, uh, if I were president, I would immediately establish a task force to work with state and local communities uh, to better investigate and to help prevent these types of incidents. Uh, we need to dedicate the resources to making our police departments more inclusive and more sensitive and understanding of the challenges uh, that transgender individuals face. We also need to ensure that when transgender individuals uh, seek help at a shelter or a police department or other places, that they're treated with respect and with understanding. And uh, so, um, you know, the federal government has a role to play. Local and state communities have a role to play, and also the private and nonprofit sectors have a role to play in that. Hmm. Now, current Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Ben Carson, um, reportedly referred to transgender women uh, as, quote, big hairy men um, entering homeless shelters. What are the implications of that kind of language for how the agency operates? It makes everything so much harder on the people who are seeking help. When I was HUD secretary, one of the things that we did was that we we promulgated what's known as a transgender rule that was part of the equal access rule. So we put in place protections for transgender individuals when they went to a federally subsidized shelter. This is exactly what this administration, the Trump administration, is rolling back. And the comments by Ben Carson show that He's not a HUD secretary, and this is not an administration that is willing to serve everybody regardless of who they are. Uh, you know, he either needs to take that back or he should step down and recognize that they need somebody in that position who will make sure that people are being treated equally and fairly no matter who they are. Mm. Um, I want to ask you about a moment from the last debate. Um, in response to a question about the legacy of slavery, former Vice President uh, Joe Biden um, discussed how families raise their children. Um, do you think that Biden was talking down to families of color in particular uh, when he was talking about social workers and making sure uh, their kids hear words? Well, of course, you know, I'll, I'll let him speak for himself. I'll just say that there's so much more than that. Look, I grew up in one of these segregated neighborhoods in a single uh, parent household going to schools that were still segregated, uh, that were overwhelmingly Latino. And I know that it's a lot more than um, telling parents, hey, you're not doing a good job or you don't know how to raise your, raise your kid. In fact, a lot of those parents are doing their best. And we need to make 
changes to our institutions improve our schools, improve the kind of family supports that we offer, but also make sure that um, people have the opportunity to succeed in the first place. And so more than anything else, I, I thought that, uh, that that did not address the kind of things that we need to actually do to remove the legacy of slavery and to make sure that everybody, no matter the color of your skin, has a chance to succeed uh, in this nation. I want to touch on something personal, which is that your wife, Erica, is an educator. Um, school, of course, just started. And one of the things that I think is top of mind for so many people are the mass shootings that happened um, in August. You're also the parent of two young children. Um, how, how, has, uh, how have your own children and, you know, knowing that your wife was an educator uh, informed um, your thinking about gun violence? I, I have a daughter that's 10 who's in the uh, fifth grade and a son who just started pre-K. He's four years old. And so I, when I think about this issue, I think about the fact that uh, they're going to have to go through these drills uh, to prepare for uh, the possibility that an active shooter could come into their school. And that terrifies me as a parent because you know that it doesn't have to be this way. We know that you know, when I was going to school, these public schools, it was not like that. And so that motivates me as a parent and as a policymaker to do the things that we need to do to make sure that we stop that. Uh, common sense gun safety legislation, everything that, that folks have talked about in terms of getting these weapons off the street in the first place and making sure that people who are dangerous to themselves or other people don't get uh, these kinds of weapons. Um, and it also means that in the long term, in our culture, we need to raise a generation of young people who don't see violence as a first way to solve their problems. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I do think that in the United States that too often times um, people do resort to that as a first way to solve their problems. So in addition to everything that we need to do to get guns off the street and common sense gun safety legislation, you know, I believe that, that culturally we need to do something too. In ter insofar as culturally thinking about that, like what would that mean? Is that a conversation that happens um, in school? Is that a conversation that happens uh, at home within a family? What, what does that look like? I think it's all of that. I think it's within the family. Um, you know, I believe that uh, it's at school. Uh, I would like to see a generation that understands how to resolve conflict, avoid conflict in the first place. I also see that writ large, you know, when we think about as a nation, how do we avoid conflict instead of getting into, you know, war after war after war that has cost us $6 trillion since 2001. Uh, and, you know, as a parent, what I want for my child is that um, my daughter Karina and my son Christian will try and resolve differences that they have with other people in, in a constructive way. And so I think just at a personal level and also at a national level, uh, we need a country that doesn't seek violence first to, to resolve its conflicts. Um, before we go, I got word that you can do a Cory Booker impression. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have a Cory. Cory and well. I are both uh, Stanford alums and we're friends, friendly. And so, yeah, so uh, let me do a quick, quick Cory Booker. He was Corey just Booker. here. Yes, so yes, yeah, yes, like, like we're going to lead this campaign from a standpoint of love and compassion and we're going to rise. We're going to continue to rise in this country. We're going to rise up and vote out Donald Trump in November of 2020. Oh, <laughs> I mean, that is pr that's pretty that's, close. Um, you know, of all of the people have there, you, he's probably tempted, my best impression is Corey. Have yeah. you ever been tempted to 
something to do that on a debate stage. Is what I want. Is what I want. Uh, not yet. Okay. Although, yeah, right. you know, we All should right. have a fun debate, and then that I'll I'll do that. And then yeah. you can do that. Well, listen. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Welcome back, everyone. I just have to make a quick note about Alex's conversation with Julian Castro, who is a lovely person. But he, in that little ball change moment where he said he and Cory Booker, my husband, are uh, not real husband, <laughs> uh, are friends. I mean, friendly is just really wonderful. You know, I have to say, I didn't catch that at the moment, but uh, watching back there, I was like, oh, you don't want to call him your friend, girl. Oh, oh, well, All anyway, right. so many good moments from Iowa. Yeah, I see why. And I more have. to come. More to come. I think yes. we're actually going to have uh, our full Cory Booker conversation soon. So it's wonderful. Stay tuned. Stay and tuned. I'm not. And I'm not going to. Anyway, well, we wanted to know what your favorite impeachment jokes and memes were. And Brandon brought up this 2014 tweet from President Trump. Are you allowed to impeach a president for gross incompetence? <laughs> I don't know. Are you? I guess, uh, TBD? He has a tweet for everything. Also that, yeah. Literally everything. 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 And it's hilarious because I never noticed his Twitter before he became president. So. <sighs> Sigh. Well, Jeffrey shared this Photoshop picture of Nancy Pelosi. And this is this one is also making the rounds. That is, that is the iconic photo of the ball or bridge. <laughs> That's I think like, it was a margarita in hand. She had a cigarette by, and and cigarette, but also oh. holding a drink. <gasps> There's a cocktail. I had a lime. Yeah, love a cocktail, yeah. girl. Let's have, let's have cocktails. Our right, Christian had some words about what we are wearing today. The hosts of AM to DM have become the couple who wears matching outfits. <laughs> Correct, Christian. It's called fashion, sweetie. You know. Wow, we did it. We don't plan these things. It keeps happening. We don't. We. I, I often think of it as that we look like we're from the same editorial in a magazine. Like, oh, yeah. You know, like our outfits are complimentary, Vibes. but they are I think own. this is a great argument that we dress for like how we feel or the environment. And you and I are like synced up, I guess, now when we just were like black today. Yeah, I, I think the big takeaway is that um, our background is orange. Yeah. So it's often just... Uh, trying to figure out what actually looks good with orange. How do you so. how do you get married with this thing? That's true. That's uh-huh. true. Well, thank you to our guests, Paul McLeod, Saul Austerlitz, Julian Castro, and Boyd Holbrook. And we will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. with more AIM to DM. Have a great rest of your day. Bye.